Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Welcome, everyone, to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette, and I'm so delighted to have Brandis Daniel joining me today for Claim Your Confidence. But first, a word from our sponsors. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm Lydia Finette, and I am so excited to have my next guest sitting in front of me. Brandis Daniel has a resume as long as my arm. I can't even tell you all of the incredible things that she has done with her career. But to give you a quick summation before we dive in, Brandis is a proud fashion outsider. Outsider, you see, not insider, from Memphis, Tennessee. She has experience in fashion buying, production, and a talent for bridging the gap for designers of color. In 2007, Daniel founded Harlem's Fashion Row. 10 years later, there's a pretty exciting twist to this story, but I'm gonna wait until we get a little bit further down. She's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Good Morning America, the list goes on. Brandis, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. <laughs> the studio is the best. New Sand Studio is the cutest studio. We have a glass front and rock center. I hope anyone who goes by one rock plaza will drop by. And I also hope that people stop by on their tour today and wave. It's always my favorite part. I love that. So Brandis, I want to jump in because we were talking about this before I started the podcast. You're a Southern girl. So tell us a little bit about Brandis as a child. Yeah, I am definitely a Southern girl. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I am the middle child. It's three girls. Oof. And I am quintessential middle child. <laughs> Everything you've ever read literally describes me word for word. I grew up as a PK, so my father was a pastor. There was so much love around, and I always saw my parents giving always giving or bringing someone in the house or helping someone with something. And so I really feel like that kind of set the foundation for what I would do in the future. You say middle child, so the quintessential middle child. But what does that mean in terms of confidence? Because I feel like I have three children. My middle child is a boy and I, he's sandwiched between two girls. So tell me what it's like to be the middle child of three oh girls. So being a middle child, you feel like you're the one that's left out right? Because the oldest is so special because they were the first. Yep. The youngest is so special because they were the baby. In the <laughs> middle, you're just like, what about me? <laughs> but what ends up happening is because you kind of have this complex as a child, you end up being the most outgoing one out of all three. Because I had to end up making, you know, a lot of my friends became family. When I got older, actually, me and my sisters became very, very close. Mm -hmm. I think we're the ones who usually step outside of our comfort zone a bit more. And I really feel like that breeds major confidence over time. Yeah, absolutely. However, we will always play the role of I'm just in the middle. <laughs> were you the sort we're of never swing too hitter? For that. <laughs> Do you yes. always were you always trying to appease people on either side, or were you just no. firmly in the middle and that's who you? I were? was actually aggravating both of them <laughs> on both sides. <laughs> so, no. Not the peacemaker then. I was not the peacemaker. No. So your father was a pastor. Was your mother at home, or was she part of the church? My mom was a teacher. She was a teacher. My so mom really was a giving teacher, back. and so she taught at my school. And what was really interesting about kind of watching my mom's journey is that. 
when we all went off to college, my mom decided to also go off to college for her master's. Amazing. And so she moved from Memphis, still married to my dad, to go get a second degree. And then she did it a second time to get another degree to another school. And I just look back at her and I'm like, oh my goodness. She was incredible. Incredible. To, I took it for to that much schooling, but also to show you that path. Yes. It was amazing. She always downplays her accomplishments, but I'm like, Mom, I don't know a woman that does that, that's married and go, I have this dream of going off to school for this degree, so I'm going to do it. And I do feel like generationally, that's something we might see more now. But certainly when your mother was a mother, I don't think that that was something that you probably were looking around and seeing any other moms doing. Absolutely not. That's amazing. So education was just a huge part of your life. It was. And it obviously was. a huge focus. So you stayed in Memphis through high school. I stayed in Memphis through high school. I went to college in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Chattahoochee, I believe, is the nickname <laughs> yes. for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> was there, graduated with a degree in fashion merchandising, came back to Memphis. My best friend was dealing with a major health issue. And so I wanted to make sure that she was out of the hospital. And after that, I moved to Atlanta. Now, I knew I wanted to move to New York way before I moved to Atlanta, but New York felt so far and foreign to me. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anyone who had ever visited. I didn't know anyone who lived here. And so I felt like Atlanta was just a lot more in my reach. And then spent some time in Atlanta. My company closed that I was working for. I moved back to Memphis, which is like a horrible situation, you know, as an early 20-something, because everyone's like, oh, you're back. Um, <laughs> Jenna, just a pause, though. I'm yeah. just here for a pause. Yeah. So quick question for you. Was fashion something that was a thread throughout all of those years? You said you went to college for fashion merchandising. merchandising yeah. But where did the love of fashion come from? It was always there. It was always there. It was always there. As a kid, even, my mom would make our clothes, mm-hmm. and I was always so particular about what I wanted to wear. And what was that? So it was, you know, it was tiered dresses uh-huh. sometimes. It was sweaters, but a very particular quality sweater. And, like, and mom, my make mom it cashmere or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no, not cashmere, but, you know, I always wanted something that felt good. My mm-hmm. mom always said, you have such expensive taste. Like, where'd you get this from? And I had an aunt who would subscribed to like Harper's Bazaar and Vogue. And she was the only one in my family that subscribed to those magazines. And I would go to her house and just get lost in these magazines. It was almost like it was like transporting me into another world. And so I think the challenge was that I had no idea I could actually make a living doing this, but the love was definitely always there. And it was always there. Yeah. And so what did your parents say when you told them that you were gonna go to college for fashion merchandising? Well, I went to college for pre-med oh. to start, which makes it worse, <laughs> yeah, right? That actually is, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during that phone conversation. Exactly. It makes it a lot worse. They were very upset, actually, when I told them I was changing my major. And my mom, who is my biggest supporter, just could not believe that I was making that switch. And what type of job was I going to get with that degree? Mm-hmm. And I understand because... Now, you know, everyone's like, I want to work in fashion, and they know about different jobs. No one at the time was really majoring in fashion. Yeah, so no social media. It's, it's basically what you're reading in a magazine, period. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so that was hard, but again, going back to being the middle child, there was something in me that said, there's something here, yeah. and this is the path that I have to go on for myself. Yeah. So you're in college. 
You go back to Memphis because you thought you had the job in Atlanta, did not work out. What happens? I'm in Memphis. I am working for a temp service. I am filing papers during the day. And you're thinking, this is not for me. (laughs) (laughs) And in the evening, I'm working retail at Brooks Brothers. Okay. So a little fashion. A little fashion. And so this guy walks up to me while I'm at the temp job and I'm filing papers. And he looks at me and he says, what are you supposed to be doing? Who was this guy? He was one of the guys in the department that I was working for. And his name was O.C. Body. Why was it that you were just dressed in one of your fabulous outfits? What was the impetus for that? I have no idea. I I don't, he must have saw something else in me. Yeah. And when he said it, I knew what he meant. Yeah. And I just answered him and I said, I'm supposed to be a buyer. Because at the time, that was my goal. I want to be a buyer. And he said, well, why are, you, why are you here? You know, there's a corporate office here in Memphis. Have you sent them your resume? And I said, yes, I've sent them my resume, but I haven't heard back. He said, well, I used to work for West Point, And all I did was take in resumes and go, yes, no, maybe. Can I see your resume? He looked at my resume and he said, this would go in the no pile. Let me help you get it to the yes pile. Wow. And he had lunch with me like maybe three days in a row just to kind of like review. He would give me feedback. I would go back, make changes, sent the updated resume to the same company and they called me the same day. For any entrepreneurs, any young people out there who are looking for jobs, what do you think it was? What do you think you did in that resume that showed people who you really were? if you weren't the person who was supposed to be filing papers. Yeah, you know, in the first resume, I just said what I did. Mm. In the updated resume, what I said was how much I did it and what I accomplished. And so there was a lot of different areas that were quantified in the updated resume. Mm. I don't think I had any like numbers in the first resume. It would Mm. just say, you know, I did costing for a home builder. But in the new resume, it would say I did five costings a week for homes that were, you know, $300,000 or I can't remember, but it was just putting the number to it made the biggest difference. Yeah. And that's probably a life lesson too in business in general. Absolutely. I think women, a lot of times we leave with emotion. Well, I feel this. I work so hard. Talk to me about the numbers. What kind of impact does that make? It's always something that people used to say to me when I was younger. And I thought that advice... It's the kind of thing that you hear it once and you never really forget it. So It's so true. Remember that if you're listening. It's so true. Your resume has gone from the no pile to the yes pile. Mm-hmm. You get the call. And where does that lead you next? So I end up working for Catherine's, which is a plus size women's store. Mm-hmm. And I started out an allocation analyst. So I didn't get the job that I really wanted, which was to be an assistant buyer. But... I had kind of made up, and this is my personality all the way, I kind of go to these extremes in order to box myself in. Uh-huh. Now, I don't like to be boxed in unless I'm doing them, yeah. <laughs> unless I'm doing it to Hate myself, yourself into right? that corner, yeah. But I like to kind of get myself to a place where either I win or I lose bad. Like, oh. it's, it's no other, like, there is no other options. There's no and middle so, ground there's for the no middle, middle child. Ground. It's in or out. no middle ground. <laughs> and so I had said to myself, I'm going to take any position that they give me. Mm-hmm. If it's the receptionist, I will take it because when I get to the door, I will get to the job that I want. Yeah. I will do whatever it takes to get to the place where they understand that I'm qualified for that next role. And so I took this role 
I did it for a little while, about six months without asking for anything else. Then I think about six months, I asked for a new position that became open, which was an assistant buyer. Mm -hmm. And my boss's boss told me, you got to be in the role for two years first. They just made that rule up. Of course. <laughs> okay. Arbitrary rules. Uh, arbitrary Thanks, rules. companies. Absolutely. And so what I said was, I said, okay, well, let me go to the buyer. And I said, what if I came in early? She always came in really early. What if I came in early, work with you until nine? At nine o'clock, I did my regular job until five. And then I came back and worked with you until the evening or whenever you left. And she said, that's fine with me. You just have to get sign-offs from your boss and your boss's boss. And so I went to all of them. And they all said, as long as it doesn't impact your work. And so I did that for about six months. I worked two jobs for no extra pay, but it was the opportunity. And so when the buyer's assistant left, she fought for me to become her new assistant. Amazing. Before the two-year term. Because you did the pre-work. Absolutely. And you did the work. Absolutely. And you probably at that point felt like you had an understanding of what the job was because you'd been doing the job at that point and you were ready for it. Yes. And I don't think that you can ever, I don't think you can really look at a job over the course of your life and realize that you didn't know enough about it if you've done a good job, if that right. makes sense. Because yep. you can always look back and think, okay, I dug in a little bit harder there. I did a little extra work there. I went above and beyond. And that is how that job ended up at his mind. And that's got to feel really good. It felt so good. And so how long were you at Catherine's? I was there for about, I think, three or four years. And then I was strategizing how to get to New York. So it was always about New York. It was always about New York. Oh, I felt the same way, Brandis. I I know that feeling. I came here when I was 10 and I was like, I'm going to live in that beautiful city. Yeah. So then, you know, I took my first trip here for my 25th birthday Mm -hmm. with like three of my girlfriends and we stayed in Times Square, I believe, which is like typical, right? (laughs) For the first time. (laughs) Chuck E. Cheese right there. (laughs) And um, as soon as I got here, I said, this is exactly what I thought it was going to be. This is where I'm moving. And so I started visiting New York like twice a year because it was so intimidating for me and I need to get rid of the fear factor. So I started coming here uh, with friends and family and visiting. And out of the blue, a friend called me. Actually, it wasn't a friend. It was someone who worked for a vendor in New York called me. She was on the streets in San Francisco and said, Brandis, do you want to move to New York? I had never spoke to her ever about moving to New York City. She just knew because you put it out of the universe. She just knew. Yeah, that's She just amazing. knew. And so long story short, I ended up working for that company, which was on Madison and 34th Street at the time. And it was one of the best experiences I could have ever had because I had the opportunity to travel to Asia quite a bit Mm -hmm. to meet with our factories and negotiate with them. And I had never been outside of the country before. And so that was my first experience, like using my passport and flying business class and going to Asia and, you know, experiencing a whole new culture. I met so many friends that I still have that live in Indonesia. So it was just incredible. What an amazing experience. Absolutely. Where did you move when you moved to New York? I moved to Harlem. You moved to Harlem? I moved to Harlem. I had a place to stay for two weeks. I had negotiated that. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a place to stay after the two weeks. So you had a job lined up and a, a place to stay up. for two weeks. Yes, that's it. <laughs> what was the game plan? So, Did I just ask? What was Lydia? Big again, smile, Southern again, charm. Again. <laughs> how, how old is your son? I know. He's eight. Oh, oh. <laughs> Welcome your seatbelt. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. <laughs> because I decided, again, 
you know, I, I put myself in these situations where it's either sink or swim. Yeah. And I found an apartment on Craigslist the night before I flew to New York to live here. Oh, I love it. And as soon as I got to my temporary spot, I put my bags down because I only moved here with two suitcases in the duffel bag, uh-huh. put my things up. I took a taxi to Harlem. I looked at the place. It was a small studio that cost more money than I thought I would ever pay for a studio. Can I ask you a question? Because sure. I, too, moved to New York with a duffel bag and lived in a studio. Did you actually know what a studio apartment was before no, you moved here? Not that I had no idea. I remember walking into the first place I rented in New York, which is a studio, and I walked through the kitchen, and I was like, oh, this door must lead to the bedroom. No, it led to the bathroom because a studio apartment for people who do not live in New York City is one room, period. Yes. And the couch was also the bed in the yes, studio. Same. I had a futon. They had a exactly. red futon yeah. in there. And I remember thinking, wow, I don't know that I've made it per se, but uh, at least I'm living in New York. Exactly. My mom was actually the one who said, is it safe? I said, yes. Is it clean? Mm -hmm. I said, yes. Is it near Subway? I said, yeah. She said, take it. Yeah, that's good mom. Because believe it or not, I wanted to keep looking. Yeah. I only had to. <laughs> With 10 days left. Yes. <laughs> pounding the streets and to so find another apartment. Yes. I love it. And how did you fall in love with Harlem? Was it just then or was it something that evolved over time? It was just then. I didn't know much about Harlem before I moved to New York. As a matter of fact, I thought I would live in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. And that first studio apartment, I had that. And then I moved down the street to a bigger apartment with two roommates. And there was something about Harlem that reminded me so much of the South. I always say Harlem like gave me the biggest hug when I moved here because the guys, you're walking down the street and the guys talk about how nice you look. And, you know, it's like this like gentleman that like will help you across a puddle. That really happened to me in Harlem. It's amazing. There is, I think she may have been Sudanese woman who worked at the laundromat because I didn't have a washer and dryer and she would like volunteer to watch my things so that I could, she was, she became like a second mom to me. And there were so many ideas that were bubbling up in Harlem at the time. So you could feel this rush of creativity and warmth and community, but then also innovation at the same time. It was honestly a magical place to be in 2005, which is when I moved there. But you're working at this point still downtown yes. in Manhattan on yes. 34th and Madison, Madison, you'd said. So tell us what brought you to making Harlem so much a part of your story. What did that evolution look like? Oh, you know, me and my friends started throwing events in Harlem. And so we started to meet so many other people. I had my favorite coffee shops that I would go to in Harlem. And at the time, you would go there, you would be working on your computer, someone else would be working, and then you guys would have a whole conversation about life. You exchange information. So it really was such a close-knit community. It's very difficult to even explain that because it's not a small place. Right, right. But it almost felt like this safe cocoon. Really, when I look back, it was the perfect place for me to move as a transition after leaving Memphis. And when you were down there, you also started volunteering at a boutique uptown, is that correct? I did. So there were several high-end boutiques that were popping up in Harlem around 2006, 2007. And so there was Bioyama, there was a high-end denim, like Japanese, he sold like Japanese denim um, there. There was another shop, Montgomery, there was Pieces who sold, she was almost like an intermix type of of feel. And so they were all popping up in Harlem at the exact same time. And so I I thought my dream was to own a boutique. Mm -hmm. That was my dream. 
So I asked the guy who was at the corner at Bioyama, could I volunteer on the weekends? And so he said, sure. And so I went in, volunteered, and quickly realized that I did not like that. <laughs> I did not like that experience. Half um, of learning about work is just realizing what you don't like and making sure that you don't do it right long term. <laughs> absolutely. I loved his shop, and he was so great. But I didn't like the idea of waiting on customers to come in the door. Yeah. That, for me, was... You know, I needed to be out doing something, talking to people, making things happen. And when you're just sitting in the store. There's none of that. There's none of that. So how did you make things happen? So I went to a fashion show in Brooklyn in 2007, May of 2007. And I'm there and I'm thinking, I want to do this in Harlem. And I just started planning it like in my head, like every, I was like, oh, I should have those boutiques in the first fashion show. And I kept just seeing like this vision of what it would be while I was watching this other fashion show. And so I went there with a friend, Camila, and she finished watching the show and she said, where were you? And I had gone to sit down because I could still leave the fashion show, but I had gone to sit down because I, I was in a zone of sorts. Like I was in this place of just visualizing what this idea could be. And I started working on it and I decided to set a date. And the date was August 17th, 2007, which was about three months after, after I got you the, had idea. the idea. Yes. And you had nothing at that point. You I didn't had have nothing. nothing. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> nothing nothing. But, but an idea and a date. That's it. <laughs> Tell us about that first fashion show. The first fashion show is probably my favorite experience to date with HFR because there is nothing like having an idea, feeling a lot of conviction around that idea and actually moving forward on it and seeing it come to life. Mm -hmm. That feeling, there is no other feeling like that. Like it is the most incredible experience I've ever had. But that show wasn't easy to make happen. Like every boutique that I asked to be a part of it, except the one I was volunteering with told me no. And so I had to keep going back to convince them to say yes. So eventually four out of the five said yes. I didn't know makeup artists. I didn't know hairstylists. I didn't know models. I didn't know how to put a runway together. My friend who was an ER doctor in New York was like going to Home Depot the morning of the show <laughs> to get wood. Saving lives at night, to, building your runway during yes, the day. To, to get wood oh, God. from Home Depot on the top of a car. She still talks about how she was driving with her hands on top trying to make sure the wood didn't fall off. Oh my goodness. We were painting the runway as people were arriving to attend the event. Oh my goodness. There were so many things that went wrong, but it was a perfect event. It's amazing because my next question when I was thinking about this story was going to be, did you feel deflated or energized after it? But it's clear that you felt energized by Completely it. Completely energized. And this was sort of your dream. This is three months in the making, but not really. This is really a lifetime leading up until this moment. And you called it Harlem's Fashion Row. I called it the New Renaissance Harlem's Fashion Row. Talk to me about the name. The New Renaissance was about what I saw happening in Harlem. Mm -hmm. It was musicians and it was poets and it was writers and it was people who worked in different industries kind of coming together and collaborating and building relationships and friendships. And so I almost felt like there was like this new renaissance that was happening at the time. And Harlem's Fashion Row was actually in small letters. 
And so it's really, really interesting that that became the name of the company. I didn't know that I was choosing the name of a company. I thought I was choosing the name of an event. When you did this, did you realize that this was going to be something that took on a life of its own? Or after that evening, were you like, well done, Brandis? <laughs> Glass of champagne. What did you do next? You went to FIT. Were you at FIT at this point or did you go after this? I was at FIT. I was attending FIT at the same time. I knew during the planning process, I still have my journal from then. I love it. I should have brought it. <laughs> you should have read but, from it, I know. Um, Give us a summation. I still have my journal. And as I was moving forward with this, it was like my vision for whatever this would be was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and so I was already thinking beyond the August 17th event. I was already in my journal. I literally have written that, you know, this will be written up in major publications and we're going to be showing these types. Like so much of what I wrote has happened. But did it happen right then? Oh, like no. With your, that's, okay, so that's oh, no. what I was drilling down on because I oftentimes believe, and I'll say this even in myself, like I have a vision for what I want. And sometimes I look around and I'm like, nobody else can see this, but I see it. And then as things over time start happening, people are like, oh, wow, I can't believe that happened. I think to myself, oh, no, but this has been my plan all along. Yes. I've known that this was going to happen. I didn't know how it was going to happen, but yes. I knew it was going to get there. So that first day, because I think a lot of entrepreneurs fall short after that first, they think it's the biggest triumph. And then the next day, they're sort of like, oh, what next? I did that. I did that. I didn't do an event in 2008 mm -hmm. because I was probably riding a little too high. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, riding, everyone will come to me. <laughs> I was riding a little too high in 2007. And what happens when you do something the first time it's, it's like I was frozen. Like, I, I couldn't figure out how do I do this again? Yeah. Because the first time already felt like a miracle. Yeah. And it was like, how, <laughs> Lightning how do all. I do a miracle again? <laughs> yeah, I can't make that happen um, twice. And so 2008, I, I, I didn't do it. And when you say it takes a long time, some of the things that I wrote in that notebook, it took 10 years to have happen. It yeah. took 12 years for probably some still of those happening things. still. Some things are still happening. And I, it wasn't always easy for you. So you decided in 2011 to just go all in. Right? I did. I quit my job. That was a jump. That was a big cliff jump. Oh my gosh. And I'm going to tell you why I really quit my job. Yeah. Jump. I knew that I had to give this everything, but I was also dating my husband at the time. Mm -hmm. And he was used to me, you know, working a job, you know, everything financially was all set and pretty for me. And I kept saying to myself, I feel like he's going to propose. He cannot propose to this Brandis. He has to see all of me because I felt like, oh, this could be the one for me, but I needed to make sure I was the one for him. Yeah, I felt like I needed to really show him who I was fully so that he could decide. So interesting. And so I quit. In 2011, I was not prepared to quit. I did not have enough finances saved to quit. And so it made it quite difficult for me. And I went through a lot of really challenging points. Thank goodness I had great girlfriends mm -hmm. and great friends in New York at that moment. They were a lifeline for me. But that process was not easy because I had not figured out how to generate revenue for my business. So you had the idea but you hadn't figured out the money part of it. I had not figured out the revenue streams. 
You've talked about your community a lot, which I love to hear because I dig into my well of friends yes. constantly for advice, for people to dry my tears, just depending on what's going on that yes. particular week. But I love to hear you. You've said that a couple of times, and I love to hear that you have that tight community that lifts you up as well when things aren't going exactly as planned. Absolutely. So what do you do when you don't have the revenue and you've quit your job? <laughs> <laughs> you figure it out. I did so many sponsorship decks, mm -hmm. proposals, sent them out to so many different people. And in 2010, we got our first sponsor. And that for me was a moment where I said, okay. It was a big, huge company. Mm -hmm. And they wrote my company, Harlem's Fashion Row, which I had not actually incorporated until they told me it was required for them to write a check. <laughs> Nothing like a little nudge. Right. <laughs> and that was that moment where I said, okay, this can work. And then 2011, we brought in more sponsors and in 2012. And so every year I was kind of learning what that process looked like mm -hmm. and how it worked and how you get event sponsorship for your events. And that was how I financed some of my living expenses. But the blessing was that I had three roommates. Our rent was very inexpensive. It was less than a thousand dollars. And just day to day, I didn't go to dinners or, you know, the things that I was doing before I quit. Yeah. All of that all was that goes, good. Yeah. So I totally changed my yeah. lifestyle to kind of adjust to this small amount of money that I had. Yeah. Because you were living for your dream at that Absolutely. point. You said it's taken you over a decade to make this happen, but I know that there was a big low before there was a big high. Can you tell me about the big low and then the big high? Sure. So over the 10 years, we started to gain traction. The fashion community started to pay attention to us. We had sponsors like Verizon and Pandora Jewelry and Prudential and Macy's and Target. And so I was just feeling Pandora Jewelry. I mean, the list goes on. I was feeling really, really good. And it wasn't that everything was up. Like in that 10 years, we had some challenging times. But 2017, our 10th year, I had this vision that all of these brands that have supported us over the years would come back and go, absolutely, we're going to come in and we're going to support you. We're going to come in and sponsor this and that because this is your 10th year. Yeah. What I found out was that the only person who cared about my 10th year was me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh. It was me. And... <laughs> And it was so hard. Like it was everything about that event was hard. It was hard to get designers on board that year. It was hard to get sponsors on that year. We set up the event. It was going to be done in Harlem. It rained the day of the event. And we literally were to the penny, to the penny with expenses. So that rain took us way over. Oh, no. I had already like maxed out my credit cards. I put this on my husband's credit card, telling him I would pay him back, not knowing that it was going to rain. Yeah. For the first time, I had a sponsor commit and then take their commitment back. Oh, no. You know, New York City is one of those places where if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Right. We don't need a contract for everything right away. We just get started. We know the contract is coming. I had done business like that for 10 years. Yeah. I never had anyone back out of a commitment. Yeah, and you've probably never not done something with a contract ever since. Right, yeah, you learned exactly. That once. Yeah. I learned that. Yeah. And so that event was really, really tough. Like, I remember that morning waking up and not even wanting to go. Yeah. Not even wanting to show up. 
It was raining outside. My sister was on site. She was watching them put up tents. We were figuring it out on the spot. And I just felt like this does not look like what I had envisioned yeah. for our 10th year. I felt really low. I was trying to figure out how I was gonna tell my husband yeah. that I didn't have the money to put back on his card. It was just really, really rough. And so I woke up that morning and I said, I'm gonna go in with a positive attitude and I go to the event and I pretend like it's not raining, Lydia. There's water coming down yeah, my face. Of a friend of mine always <laughs> tells a story of me standing on stage, water coming down my face, pretending like it's not raining. And we get out of that event and I say to myself, these 10 years were beautiful, but I'm putting them in a sequin box, the gold bow, and I'm putting them on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the next 10 years will entail for me. I know my purpose is to uplift designers of color. Mm -hmm. I know that with everything in me and to give them a platform to thrive. But maybe it looks different. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not events. I'm not gonna walk away from my purpose, but I may walk away from how I've been doing it in these past 10 years. And there was a guy at the time who helped me get sponsorships. And he said, okay, Brandis, let's work on 2018, which was would have been our 11th year. And I said, I'm not doing anything in 2018. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, unless it's a collaboration, like a product collaboration, I'm not doing any events because I'm not sure where I'm headed next with all of this. And he said, are you serious? I said, I'm serious. And so I didn't do a proposal. I didn't pitch any brands. I just said, I will see what happens. Took a pause. I took a pause. And for the first time, I think in the last time, a brand reached out to us and said, hey, what are you guys doing in February? We have this budget. We would love to sponsor whatever it is. And that was like a sign to me like, okay, maybe this isn't over yet. And then that November, right after the show, we did the show in September, I got an email and it said, hey, Brandis, I'm talking to an athletic brand. They wanna work with black designers. And I told them if they wanted to work with black designers, they needed to work with you in Harlem's Fashion Row. Are you interested? I love this story. I read this story in an article. I love this story so much because I have a catchphrase in life called network or die, which talks about networking. It's something I learned from my dad about networking with people all the time, every day, no matter where you are, because you never know when they will re-enter your life. Yes. And I truly believe that the universe brings you things when you're ready. Yes. Not a minute before. Absolutely. And I think part of claiming your confidence is being ready and being open to those moments when someone comes to you, when you sort of say to yourself, okay, so this is what it's all been leading up to. Like everything that's happened in the past 10 years, including the rain coming down your face on that stage led you to a moment like the one you're about to tell us about, which I love so much. You're so right. I really needed to be at my lowest place in order to approach this opportunity the right way. So tell us about the opportunity. So she asked me if I'm interested, I say yes. And by the way, what she said to me is, because this is someone I had not talked to in three years. Right. And you met her in a hotel lobby, isn't that right? I met her in a hotel lobby three years prior. And she said, I've been watching you. And she said, but I need to send you over an NDA. I said, okay, the NDA comes through. I don't know what type of company I thought it would be, but it comes through with a swoosh. And I'm like, oh my God, this is Nike. What? 
Um, and Not exactly then, a small, unheard of brand. I didn't even send the NDA to my attorney. I signed <laughs> it, sent it back over. The next day, I'm on the line with a brand manager for Nike. And it almost feels unreal. Yeah. I, I was like, am I really talking to someone from Nike? And we have this conversation and she's talking about this athlete and how this athlete was on this bouncy ball and he was saying these amazing things about black women and that they wanted his next sneaker to be focused around this story with black female designers. And she says, and the athlete is LeBron James. And you said, who? Right, (laughs) at this point I'm like, wait, what? And you have to, I was at such a, low place in my life and then this happens in a matter of two days so one day I get the email next day I get the NDA the next day I'm on the call with the brand manager when the brand manager was having that conversation with you did you just feel like you were 100% prepared though no I did not feel like I was 100% prepared but it turns out that I was way more prepared than what I thought I was. Because you'd had a decade. Because I had had a decade. And it was all in there, all that knowledge, everything you needed to know, they were coming to you because you were the expert. And it's so interesting, Lydia. She said, just send me over a few designer names that you think would be interested in this opportunity. And that would be great. They were gonna pick one designer. Because I spent 10 years doing proposals and decks, I couldn't send links. Are you kidding me? So I sent this entire deck framing what LeBron had said and how I felt like there was like this connective tissue between stories in these women's lives and what he had said. And I laid it all out. And the deck was beautiful. It was, you know, parts of the designer's story. It was their work. It was who they had worked with. And I submitted three designers. And when they got that deck, they were all expecting something totally different and they got it and apparently they printed it out, put it up on a wall in a Nike offices and said, we can't pick just one of them. And they picked all three. So everything you knew, you just handed them the perfect people. And tell us how quickly that collaboration sold out. Oh my gosh, that collaboration sold out in less than five minutes. (laughs) It was incredible. It's amazing. I mean, congratulations. That story gives me full body goosebumps. It's just such an incredible story. But it really, it's the kind of story that you work for your entire career when everything you've gone through leads to this moment, which then really becomes the platform that you've built for yourself. That's the crazy part. It's not a platform that someone gave you. You built that you know, piece of wood from Home Depot on top of a car. And as a result of that, you are in the place where you should be at that time. And that for you has been a launching pad. So talk to me about not only what that brought to you in your own story, but how you've been able to give back. Because I know in 2020, you were able to launch an incredible program that's given millions of dollars back. Yeah, so that opened so many doors. After that, we did collaborations with American Girl, Banana Republic. We just dropped a collaboration last year with Jimmy Choo and Timberland. We worked with LVMH last year. And so it allowed us to do a lot of different things. In 2020, I was talking to designers and they were saying, Brandis, I don't know if I can keep my doors open. And I had always had this idea that I would build a nonprofit that will give money to black designers and to HBCU fashion departments. Those were kind of the two places where I felt like there was such a big need. But I thought, you know, I don't know, 
10 years from now, yeah, exactly. I'll do that. When I have, years, you know. Yeah. And, but when 2020 happened, I knew I had to do something right away. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to start this nonprofit. And I called about 50 fashion friends and we did a big virtual fundraiser for it. And I brought on all of our brand partners for 2020. I said, you know, we'll gift you with this so that you can see what we can do from a virtual standpoint. And so they all came on board and we did this event. Maybe a week later, I get a call from the CFDA and they wanted to give us a million dollar donation from the CFDA in Vogue. Anna Wintour puts me in her editor's letter and I think it was the August issue uh, 2020, which that opened more doors. Yeah. Gap Inc. then donates a half a million dollars for me to give to HBCU fashion departments the next year. And so it's so interesting because Icon360, which is our nonprofit, has it's just taken on a life of its own. And I'm still learning that world in the meantime, like I'm building the plane in the air, but it's incredible to be able to give to these fashion departments that have never gotten a donation before. Almost every, about nine out of the 10 departments that we gave money to had never received funding Amazing. ever. And so that has been amazing just to see what they're like. There's uh, Clark Atlanta. They're here right now because of the scholarship fund. They're in New York visiting. They're going to American Girl to see the collaboration with HFR. I met them last night for dinner with Dapper Dan in Harlem. And so to see these students' lives and, and, and to see them light up when they get a chance to come to New York or when they're working with a brand, it makes everything so worth it. Yeah, I bet. And also, it must be so amazing for them to see you, you know, to have mm. seen this story and to understand what it took for you to get there. Because ultimately, all of this really started, if you think about it, because you wanted to raise the profile of people who were designing in a neighborhood that you love so much. And now you're able to help globally yes. have fashion designers shown around the world because of the funds that you're giving them. Brandis, this has been such an incredible conversation. I have really enjoyed every second of learning about everything, and I feel like the time has flown by. Where can we continue to find you? What comes next? Fill us in on everything that you're doing. Yeah. We just launched a book, Fashion in Color. It's actually sold at Macy's, so it's on Macy's.com. It's an incredible book. Olivier Rusting, the creative director of Balmain, wrote the foreword and is dedicated to the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. And there are 26 designers of color that are featured in the book, A to Z. The artist who did all the paintings for the designers is a Brooklyn-based female artist who's incredible. And so we have that. And then we have HFR and Co., which is a shopping website mm -hmm. for people who say, you know what, I want to shop and support designers of color, but I don't know where to find them. And so we partner with Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, Macy's, and ShopBop. And now we've aggregated all of their designers of color into one platform. And then we have lots of other things coming up and events for designers. New York Fashion Week in September is like our big event. We're already working on that. Um, but will this that be is, held in Harlem again? It will be held in Harlem, in Harlem. And so, I don't know, this year feels like I'm walking into like a surprise party. <laughs> I don't really have it figured out, but I feel like it's gonna be an incredible experience. I have no doubt that whatever surprise party that you're walking into, it's gonna be a good one. <laughs> the past 
20 years of your life have been any indication. It'll be a lot of hard work, but the result will be life-changing for everyone involved. So, Brandis, thank you so much for joining us on, or joining me on Claim Your Confidence. There's no doubt to me that you have claimed your confidence, and I look forward to seeing what that looks like as you move forward in your own life and for everyone who is supporting you along the way. To everyone who's listening, thank you again for tuning in this week. I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. A huge thank you to Joe, our amazing producer who stands back here. Brandis, he's also a great laugh track. Yes, I, always see I love it. When he's laughing and to all the people who've walked by as we've been on and waved in One Rock Center, please stop by Newsstand Studios. And I will leave you all with this one thought. What platform are you building, mm. like the one that Brandis has built? What are you doing to put those pieces of wood together for yourself so that you're ready to jump when the opportunity arises? Shoot oh. me a DM, shoot Brandis a DM. Let us know what you're doing in your life so we can support you too. I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. I hope you'll tune in again next week. Thanks for being here.